It's different. It's a talking point. It does not look like anyone's idea of a complete product. And that's not what it's trying to be. It's just like, look at me. I've got a prototype. I'm the kind of guy that likes incomplete things. And that's cool to some people once in a while. Like that's kind of what it is. It's like, it's like the guy that's like, yeah, this is my remake of a 1960 blah, 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 Porsche prototype that was rejected because it killed people on the road, but no one's got one but me. On this week's show, we grind our collective gears over in-house movements, Richemont rumours, double green oblos, very orange bremens, the Tonda fidget spinner, and just for Ariel, the new aluminum bulgaries. Enjoy the show! Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. Ariel and David, how are you both? Awake! Yay! Yes, we're starting slightly late because Ariel had a nap. Gotta sleep sometime. Oriel is still awake and I'm already awake. So yeah, we are all awake apparently. Everybody's here and fully caffeinated. And we've got quite a lot on this week's show. We've got a little complicated article to begin with, a bit of a potted history based on something that David has written. And then we've got a shed load of watches to talk about. So we might manage to get to some of them depending on how quickly we get chatting to David about his most recent Monday article, one of his articles in the Grinding Gear series. So this, David, is why the in-house watch movement craze was, stroke is stupid, and the cool way out. Now, I want to try and get a potted history of how we ended up where we are right back from the beginning. So my guess is the start of this is kind of quartz crisis, that resulted in eventually the forming of Swatch, Stroke, ETA, all of that. Any of you want to tell me how it all got going? Who, who's the expert? David, have you done your research? Ariel, is this just knowledge that you imbibed as a bairn? <laughs> it's a complicated topic. I don't know where David wants to start it, because if we start all the way to the formation of Edda, I don't know that we're going to get to his topic for another six or ten hours. <laughs> yeah. I just want to try and contextualize as to... I, I, I don't think people really understand what Etta actually is. They think it's just this company that makes watch movements, but it was completely gerrymandered together as a result of the quartz crisis. So how did that happen? One of you is going to need to add it because I can't, I don't know enough of the facts. I, I'm willing to say there's a thing I don't know. I think and this is it. what's important <laughs> to say is that while the Swatch Group represents about 16 or so watch brands that you know people tend to be able to mention, there's also a bunch of other companies they own which are known as just suppliers. And these are various, what we'll just call technology or component companies that make a variety of things that go into making the watch movements, cases, dials, etc. So Etta is a watch movement maker. In reality, encompasses a bunch of different companies. Nivirox, for example, which makes hairsprings and things like that, is a, a separate company, but Etta uses Nivirox parts. And so it's a group of companies. And the Swatch Group is the biggest watch industrial uh, company in the world in terms of the conglomeration of companies it owns and, and what it specializes in doing, larger than Rolex, of course, given that there's so many uh, different types of companies and a, a larger overall production. Um, so that's essentially, you know, what Swatch is, and ETA is the movement-making arm of that. Did ETA exist pre-Quartz Crisis? Or, as I understood it, there was a load of little companies that did little bits and pieces of making stuff for making movements that all went that were all in danger of going bust 
during the quartz crisis. So the Swiss government stroke the Swiss banks, cobbled them all together and palmed them off on Hayek to go, right, you sort this out. You're in charge of all of this now. Well, it's it's actually quite uh, deep when it comes to, you know, what exactly did Hayek do? There was other people involved as well. You know, some of the psychology needs to be discussed in more detail to get a proper history. But yes, um, Hayek Sr. and a consortium of, of interests um, basically worked with a bunch of different parties, including banks, to, in their words, save the watch industry, right? Because the watch industry wasn't a particular brand. It was an assortment of companies that together allowed for the manufacture of watches because there's so many different parts. And so what the Swatch Group was trying to do is have, you know, a, a bunch of companies that together between them all, you could make complete watches and things like that. It was, in the truest sense, a consolidation effort. Okay, so we end up with ETA. And because you then effectively had a large proportion of the Swiss capacity to make watch movements controlled by one company. Am I right in saying the government then had to step in to say, by the way, you have to supply anyone that wants your watch movement. You can't decide, oh, we're going to supply Joe Bloggs who wants to make a watch here in Switzerland, but not this guy over here. Effectively, without being state-owned, they were basically a, a, a service industry for all of Swiss watchmaking. If you wanted an ETA movement, you could just form an orderly queue and buy some movements. Is that it's how it was comp structured? It's, it's, it's a lot more complicated <laughs> than that. I, look, starting in, I believe, the early 2000s, and for a long time, and there was a lot of different back and forth, the Swatch Group made, we'll call it a strategic business decision that said, you know what? Right now... We're selling a lot of movements to competitors, and those competitors are putting them in watches that are competing against our brands. So they found themselves in the strange situation where they were producing components that were they were selling for money, but they were also being sold to competitors that were competing with their brands. And so there was this idea at the Swatch Group where, you know what? If we just stop selling movements to competitors, we'll own that market. Why, you know, like no one else exists but Etta really to make, for the most part, those types of movements at that quality and at that price point, which was true at the time. And, you know, they 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 wanted to use more of those movements for their own watches. I think the calculus was like, you know what, why sell just the movement when we can put the movement in a completed Longines or Tissot or Hamilton and make more money? And at the time, since the the world luxury market was really growing. China was big, and this was before the, um, you know, the the financial crash, 2008, 2009. And they believed that it was going to make sense for them. But when they tried to do this, it was seen that there was all these companies out there that entirely relied on ETA movements. Like the whole industry that was a competitor to this watch group, for the most part, unless they were lucky enough to be like a Rolex that was making, for the most part, their own movements, they, they relied on ETA. And there was this idea that it was anti-competitive. If you, if you have a monopoly on these movements, which they did, you can't just make this decision that will harm competition. So that's what the idea was. The idea was that they didn't want to sell in order to harm competition. It's a strange situation. And so what ended up happening was a strange compromise, if you will. And then Edda actually decided to reverse course and change their strategy and say, okay, we'll <laughs> sell to some people. But what yeah. the government eventually made... Etta do is sell 
to some companies, not all, the prices went up. It became harder to get. You know, Edis sold less of them. They still don't sell now as many as as they used to. But in the meantime, over the last, you know, probably about 20 years, all these other companies have popped up to to do what Edda did, which is sell movements to third parties. And, you know, that's the funny thing is that eventually Rolex got in the game, right? So the Rolex, the, you know, the Hans Wildor Foundation that owns Tudor, Tudor basically owns Kinesi. Kinesi is a third party movement maker. So you can, so Rolex now does it. So Edda does it, Rolex does it, Salida, of course, does it. And a whole spectrum of other companies with various production levels also does it. So Edda Still makes you know some of the some of the best movements for the money. Salida is a, is a close competitor; doesn't have quite as many movements and things like that. There's some differences. So the world today, 20 years later, is is very very different. About a decade ago, I discussed you know certain nuances of the in-house uh, movement and 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 how how it affected the industry. Really, just drove up a lot of costs and, and caused a lot of issues. And now, you know, it seems that David has sort of renewed the, the conversation a bit. So I hope that's a bit of a history. So, David, take us from the start of your story, which is really from brands panicking that ETA were going to cut off supply, as Ariel mentioned. So take us from that point into where your, your story that you produced on, on Monday uh, takes us. Yeah, just before we do that, I, I would recommend reading the uh, um, our article that's titled A Brief History of Edath, the Swiss Watch Movement Maker. This is back from like 10 years ago when I wrote this. And at the time, you know, it was really difficult to research and find all this information and put together all these infographics and stuff. But it's a very cool history. It goes, it, it tells the story of how ETA goes back to the 1930s and other crises and how it became part of a larger conglomerations of sorts where you know it, it was under the same roof with Valju and a number of Unitas and a number of others and how it progressed up to the point where a Swatch Group took over uh, the whole everything basically uh, in the late 1970s early 1980s you can find all the dates and stuff and it's I think it's important to know that uh, that, that process in which uh, ETA and all this uh, tremendous movement manufacturing and watch manufacturing capacity ended up in one hand and one hand only. And that is, as Arya said, is why Gomco um, prohibited them from just ceasing um, to supply, you know, third party brands, because you can't do that if you own all the capacity, you cannot just pull the plug, because essentially that would mean you put all these other brands out of business and immediately, because it's difficult to sell a watch without a movement in it. And at the time... Some and have tried. Yes, <laughs> and and what we're talking about is the is the uh, early two thousands already when this when this whole thing started and and Nicholas Hayek the senior came up with this idea at the time and it was only in twenty thirteen when you know the Swatch Group uh, has managed to uh, strike a deal with Comco and they were ordered to continue supplying parts uh, until the end of 2019 but at the time of course all these other brands and bigger groups uh, you know had started to scramble because they wanted to make sure that they have their own supply of movements to fall back on and you know this as i say in the in this latest grinding gears uh, column is has created a situation where they had to pour millions and often tens of millions of Swiss francs into um, uh, building their own manufacturers, developing their own movements and stuff. And of course, it's only natural that marketing would come in and say, hey, you know, if we're spending all this money, I guess we, we, we would have to say that it's the be all and end all of movement making because A, it's expensive, B, we have no other option and C, we 
thrive on our status and being the most excellent and outstanding and prestigious and whatever brand in the world. And so our movements have to be that as well. But reality, of course, was slightly different from marketing and a lot of these early generation movements, in-house movements that these brands had to develop in haste were not, not as great as they were advertised uh, in terms of reliability or accuracy or durability or efficiency or whatever. Um, and so my proposition in this article is to say that I would love to see a lot of brands working together and getting movements from other brands you know, whose field of expertise has been for a long time to produce these movements. And I bring a number of examples to say that we've seen this happen, of course, for the last 150 years and more, uh, but also for the last, you know, two decades, three decades of, of the luxury watch industry, we've seen some amazing watches powered by movements from other brands and embraced uh, by the producer of, of that design or whatever. And again, uh, this can result in fantastic watches. So that's my proposition, basically. I want to add something here that was quite interesting from about 10 years ago, now even longer, which was statements that the Swatch Group was making. I remember they were being accused of engaging in anti-competitive behavior. So in order to, to sort of refute that, they had to sound like they were encouraging competition. <laughs> so one of the things that they would do at the time, a lot of, is they made the statement saying, well, we're doing this not because we we want to stop selling things to others. No, we are trying to help our, our watch industry by encouraging innovation and having to distribute risk where more That's companies true. invest in making their own <laughs> watch movements. Now, the thing which I think is funny is that I don't know if they if they thought so much of the in the industry would actually do it or follow it. They sort of had to say it for <laughs> legal reasons, but a lot of people, I think, called their bluff. I don't believe the Swatch Group truly felt that that many companies would be able to set up movement-making um, arms. And granted, certain little parts like balance springs and some other little niche components that are hard to make were not mass-made. But a lot of the other parts started being that way. And today, not crazily long after, I'd say that what the Swatch Group said they wanted to happen, which I don't think they actually wanted to happen, is now happening where <laughs> Etta is just one of of a lot of companies. And Etta still produces an, an excellent product. But, you know, I, the power of Solita as, as, as a competitor, for example, I, I don't know that anyone saw a company growing quite that big alongside uh, Edda. Uh, again, it's a different company, but it, it, it grew in result of, of, of Edda not selling. And what ended up happening is that, that the movement market increased, whereas for a lot of the Swatch brands, the markets decreased. And it's sort of like a long time ago, they made the wrong call. They never would have known, but it's just sort of interesting how between public relations, legal considerations, and just, you know, the fuzziness of business outlook, you know, so many people got this calculus wrong, and they kept jumping around back and forth. So can we identify a winner in this situation? Or has everybody lost? It sounds like ETA lost because they put out some marketing to say, yeah, we're just trying to encourage uh, people to develop stuff. And then it turned out people develop stuff. The companies that develop stuff are, are never producing, okay, Salita, some of the big guys are, but you've got companies spending tens of millions of dollars on in-house movements when they could be spending tens of millions of dollars producing actual watches and new designs and better marketing and all the rest of it. And you've got the poor consumer at the end of it who's just now super confused as to 
what is the thing to have inside the watch and presumably maybe a time bomb waiting 10, 15 years down the line because a lot of these movement producers, real niche stuff, you might not be able to repair these watches. Well, let's just look at a couple of the facts. I still hear that people have trouble buying EDA movements, which means that people still want them. So EDA, even though there are a lot of other places to buy watches right now, has some edge. Maybe it's quality, maybe it's price, maybe it's you know movement um, variety, because there's a whole variety of movements, but people still seem to want to get EDA movements. And EDA today will not sell to anyone. Similarly to what they wanted, they wanted to have the right to who they could sell to, and they definitely won the right to do that. So EDA no longer has to sell to everyone. There have been a lot of EDA competitors. And when I say competitors, I just mean other companies whose business model is to sell movements to third parties. So there have been a lot of these companies that have popped up. Presumably, this is because there's money to be made and there's demand for movements. I don't say, I don't think that every single one of them is, is necessary, but it's not just having, you know, the Solita and then maybe the Voshe and a couple of little sort of niche high-end you know, the Concepto and, and the Techno Time and whatever it is. But there's this whole universe now. So I think the industry wins because now if you're a small brand, you really get to shop around when it comes to a movement maker. And the movement makers are going to vie for your business. Solita offers services, for example, that Edda never did. And a lot of these companies will make you brand new movements. So in a lot of ways, this helped the industry do what wasn't possible at the time, which was get new movements made for at all you know at the time it wasn't even a matter of money you had to set up whole companies to make movements now you can hire companies to do it so the amount of brands that have watch movements from a whole assortment of companies is really high today you don't see a return to everything having edda which may have been something you you might have seen if they would have radically changed the business model so i have to say i think the industry as a whole wins if you judge it based on product variety um, and more diversification within the ecosystem. Uh, I agree with all of that. And, uh, you know, just to answer your question, Rick, also um, with regards to whether, you know, anyone or if ADA has lost out on anything, uh, back in 2010, when these negotiations between the Swatch Group, ADA and, and Comco were at their peak, um, Switzerland exported... Just for everyone who's listening, so Comco is the Swiss Competition Authority. Yes. Um, so at the time, uh, in 2010, Switzerland exported 4.9 million mechanical uh, watches. In 2015, that was 7.8 million. So, you know, there, this growth has been crazy and there were millions more uh, of, of movements that the, um, the um, industry needed, uh, mechanical movements. So somehow there had to be a capacity to produce all these extra movements. It's not like um, you know, and those had to come from somewhere. So it's not like Edda suddenly found itself without a customer. As Ariel said, these are uh, difficult to find even today. Um, although, of course, uh, because of COVID and stuff, you know, these numbers have dropped to 5.4 million and 6.3 million in 2019, 2021, and so on. So, so that was that was a bad period. But still, we could see this rise from roughly five to roughly eight million between 2010 and 2015 just in terms of mechanical movements. These figures are from the Federation of the Swiss watch industry. Cool. Uh, the one area which people may not be familiar with, and maybe we'll delve into this, maybe a future Grinding Gears article, is there's one particular line of business that we haven't really spoke about, and that is movement agents. Because what a number of people won't be aware is that in a lot of cases, the smaller brands that we're all familiar with, the micro brands, 
they might be buying ETA movements, but they're not buying them from ETA. There is this kind of murky world, which always sounds to me a bit like the guys that you come across selling watches out of the pocket of their, you know, sheepskin jacket. That's exactly going, what I had in mind. <laughs> it's a dark alley with a, <laughs> with a guy with a long coat. Hey, you want to buy some 2824-2s? Exactly. And it does sound like there is that kind of thing out there. I've spoken to a number of smaller brands. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. we're, we're oh, negotiating yeah. for 500 ETA <laughs> movements of, of this, that, and the next thing. Any particular experience with that? Because I think it's a world that a lot of people even the geeks that are listening to this will not be aware of is there is this sort of dark alley of movement suppliers that sounds like something more familiar with the drug trade. I mean, it's it's really this simple. If you're a company that Edda says okay to selling to, they don't really closely make sure that every movement you buy goes into a watch. There's frankly no way that they could do that. And if you're you know, an approved purchaser, they'll sell you what you want. And so what companies do sometimes is they order movements in advance of production runs they anticipate. And sometimes they order too many and they have an excess and they can sell them at a premium, right? They can actually sell them for a little bit more money than they bought them from usually to other companies that would just love the chance of having them. So oftentimes... The reseller, this broker, is someone who speaks between these companies who have this official relationship buying from Eda and these other brands that that do not, and they try to connect it to. So there's you know a margin. This reseller gets a margin, and of course the original buyer from Eda gets a margin. So we don't know exactly what the markup is, but these brands who are buying the movements have to spend significantly more money per movement than if they were buying directly from Eda. Cool. And finally. ETA and all things mechanical movement conglomerate all really came about from the existential crisis of quartz. Is there any future existential crisis on the horizon that might impact this industry in a similar vein? Or do we think it's going to be reasonable, plain sailing? People are just building new movements. They are doing what David says, ganging together with the likes of Kinesi and others just to build movements. Will there be a quartz part two? I'm so honored similar? that you think we are intelligent enough to predict apocalypses. <laughs> um, but look, I mean, it, it would require a significant shifting of the industry. We do know that for the time being, the, the, the status of the mechanical watch is relatively secure. And what I mean by that is, while it's not clear who's going to make it or who's going to buy it or why, the interest of the global consumer you know, demographic for mechanical watches does not seem to be waning. There's still enough interest out there to keep the industry going for quite some time. And there will always be smart watches and other things that compete. I, I think that eventually there's going to be more and more interest from the traditional brands to have their smartwatch products. That's a little bit more medium term. But I do think that, you know, it's not inconceivable that Eda might be making, we'll just call them much more high-tech movements than, than um, or much more connected or, or different movements. They, they would argue that their movements are very high-tech, and I agree. And, and we might see that. So I think that the companies are safe because watch demand is safe, but it's unclear sort of what form the watch movement will, will take. You know, right now, most of these companies are perfectly fine making three-hand automatics only tell the time, and people are totally cool with that. That might not be the case in the future. You know, having a wristwatch that's not connected to Bluetooth, for example, even if it does have a traditional analog dial, just might seem too too old school for some people. I, 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 I don't know, 
but I would say, like I said, that there is a large horizon of mechanical watch interest out there that, that I can see. Cool. Well, go and check out David's article. Loads of comments on that. So join in on the article and join the Discord channel for a blog to watch and come and have a chat with us there. Johan Rupert, the chairman of Richemont, has again had to get into the world of denying rumours that his company is about to get taken over. But he did reveal that there was some discussions with Kering a couple of years ago. Kering at the time would have owned USC Nardan and Girard Perigo, is that right? Yeah, yeah, at the time. Well, Richemont was going to take Kering over, not the other way around. That was the rumour, and, ru- and, ru- and this rumour... It was again, and I, 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 I hate that we're even talking about it because it's literally just sort of a back alley rumor <laughs> that you know LVMH was in discussions uh, to I don't know acquire parts of Richemont or whatever. But again, this is just a total rumor with no substantiation. But you know, you you have a call, an earnings call with Johann Rupert, and Richemont doesn't say very much. So you're just going to be like, mm. so. Uh, how about that rumor? And, you know, he's going to have to be like, absolutely not. And that's of that. Of course not. <laughs> Does this, though, create its own momentum? I mean, that's the problem with these earnings call. Again, a bit like the secret back alley deals for ETA movements. Mm. People don't necessarily realize that in big PLCs like this, the FD, the chairman, will have to sit down on a on an Effectively an open call with journalists, business journalists, brokers, traders, etc. And explain themselves as to why they're going to make more money for the shareholders. And somebody's somebody's asked a question. I've often found in business, these things kind of take on a bit of momentum. It can take a long time to go, but suddenly it goes, you know, it's only going to take somebody in LVMH group to go, you know what, this might not be a bad idea. <laughs> Let's start buying shares. Look, R- Richemont essentially is a manifestation of Johann Rupert, right? It is his personality, his ideas, what he wants it to be, for better or worse. And as long as he's around, it will take the form that it has right now, where it is it is it, uh, it is in a dominant position as far as it sees. Uh, it takes, it doesn't give, it gets to call the shots. It's that's the personality of Richemont, and it's more important to maintain that personality than to engage in what some people might see as, as wise business practices. And that's that just is what it is. I mean, again, you know, publicly traded companies tend to be those that can forecast and explain themselves. Luxury brands are not that. Um, these are companies that are famous for, at least the, the publicly traded ones, not not behaving like any other publicly traded companies, at least the ones that I know of. So I wouldn't put too much stock into, you know, share disgruntled shareholders having any power to do anything because they don't. Hmm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I did think it was interesting, though, that it got some chat about where does Richemont actually make its money from into the media. So, I mean, it's a $20 billion company, but... Well, the they're, go- they're going direct to consumer. I mean, what is, what is the strategy? The strategy is we have our brands... We make our nice products, and now we have lifestyles associated with it. I think that a company like Audemars Piguet is a company that that Richemont is looking at for lessons in terms of what to do, going direct with most of the distribution, meaning selling direct to consumer their own stores, developing relationships in sort of a club-like atmosphere. So, you know, when you buy from Piaget, you're really getting all these other, you know, this access and these services and these privileges and, and all this stuff. 
and they're trying to become a luxury service and lifestyle company more so than just sort of a strict producer of luxury goods or that are sold in some type of wholesale. And mm. that is the direction that they're going. So they still need media like a blog to watch to, to, to spread the love of their brands. You know, and people still need to see Cartier marketing material to want Cartier. But I don't think they're looking to buy new brands. I don't think they're looking to, because remember, every single brand now needs to have its own store. It used to be that the more brands you had, ostensibly you can make more money because you can just, you know, shovel those into more of those third-party retailers. Just get them to buy it. Now it's like, uh-oh, not you know that 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 model is is waning out or or limited now. If you want to sell your watches, you got to make the website, you got to do the marketing, you got to have the stores, you got to staff the stores, you got to drive the interest. I guess you're making all the margin, but every new brand that you have to do that to becomes an expense. So with the current model, I think the idea is to actually have less brands versus more because that means less, you know, less stores and, and real estate around the world to develop. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm just not sure that I'm entirely convinced that for a group like Richemont, that that's actually a good idea that from the cash burn that it involved and all the rest of it. I mean, what I was going to say Who earlier knows? was Who knows? that the what, you know, the combined revenue of the watches at Richemont's $4 billion. That's kind of pocket change to LVMH group. So could you ever see a situation in which the majority of the watch brands, which represent a minority of the earnings, get spun off from a company like Richemont and spread to the four winds. As long as Johann Rupert is of sound mind, I don't see. <laughs> no, I don't see the company um, voluntarily, you know, selling off assets. I've talked for a long time about the fact that I don't necessarily, other than as an investment in financing company, why, why what Richemont adds. Watch Group adds a lot because manufacturing capacity, help everybody make everything. And that's not to say Richemont doesn't own a bunch of stuff and a lot of good things they, they, they have been able to develop over the years. But it's been a bit of an uphill battle for them because some of their fundamental business goals just are thwarted by a market that doesn't want things to go that way. Final interesting comment from the earnings call was actually about Watchfinder, which appears to have been moved from being in the kind of watch side to being in the fashion and accessories side of things so I'm not sure what that says about Watchfinder but the organization was had its performance described as muted on the earnings call so yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens next at Watchfinder <laughs> I mean I think the distinguish the distinguishing element there is the fact that you know they're they're not producing items they're they're selling items again I don't know how about all these things are classified but you know there's no there's no real rules to their accounting so there's all mm. <laughs> types of tiny reasons that they could have moved numbers from one category to another category to satisfy needs that we couldn't possibly imagine, but uh, may yeah. or may not be what your avid shareholder wants to agree as uh, generally accepted accounting practices. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ariel, you have done a hands-on review of the Parmigiani Tonda PF Rattrapanti. What do you think? So this was the watch that they came out with last year, and the, the, the GMT, and then this year they came out with the Rattrapante version. And, you know, the, the funny thing about this is, is really about how simple but satisfying it is. Some people with these watches, and I want David's opinion here, think this little mechanism is amazing, and other people are like, like wait, what? So I, I think it's really important to sort of discuss a little bit about the opinion. I, I, I thought these were elegant and nice, but I thought that, you know, they were sort of a little bit simplistic, which is not a bad thing, but other people just love the simplicity. 
the the GMT essentially has a hidden hand under the hour hand, which can function as a second time zone, or if you want it to just be hidden under the hour hand, it's that. So you 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 press a button to uh, hide it back if you want. That's where sort of the Rotroponte part comes from, and you just sort of move the hand. So mechanically, it's quite simple. So you either have one. 12 hour time zone on the dial or two 12 hour time zones on the dial. Uh, so it's not really a GMT in that sense, because for me, a GMT would be a 24 hour thing, which just sort of goes into the odd naming conventions I have. So it, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a cool watch with some like logical quirks, but, but it's, it's, it's one of the funnest things to play with. And that's what I think that Parmigiani does not get enough credit for is that these are good fidget watches. Like, it's just sort of good to play with. Similar to chronographs, they're just like pushing the pushers. Mm -hmm. Pressing the sort of Rotroponte function where this heart-shaped cam kind of pushes a hand back to position. Like, it's just like a nice thing to do. You know, activating a minute repeater is a nice thing to do. It's, it's unless you play with these and are sort of a connoisseur, sometimes you don't understand the value, the, the tactile value of just messing with it, which can be satisfying. Uh, I think it, it could be the Richard Mille 2.0 of the 2020s if a luxury brand became the fidget luxury watch brand. And the whole thing would be constructed up on the fact that they would construct movements that are fun to play with, you know, the, the tactile feel and, and all of it. And it would not be necessarily these guys as a chronograph or a GMT or anything particularly useful. It would just feel so nice. Like... The ring command bezel on, on a Rolex, the click, 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 the way it feels, you feel like you're opening the safe and you just end up playing with it nonstop, even though you set your watch maybe like, I don't know, three times a month or something like that. And the same here, it's like these little pushers and stuff, I feel like there's this niche uh, in, this, in this world because we are still expected to take these things seriously and they are so freaking difficult to take them seriously. I mean, it's like, what is this? This is a $28,000, $28,700 watch that's supposed to be useful in some way and not really in another because the GMT hand doesn't have, there are no Arabic numerals. It's not a 24 hour dial even. So you have to do some maths in your head. So it's not like a true GMT in that sense that it's particularly useful. It's just, as Ariel said, it's just fun to play with. So I would love to see a brand that only makes watches that are freaking fun to play with, right? So that's my take on this. Uh, for now, Parmesan is just getting there, and I like it that they are playing with these concepts. Uh, and I think that could be that could be a fun way uh, for, for Parmigiani because in some other ways, like with the, the basically microscopic guilloche on the dial and all the, and the golden ratio and all the other stuff, I think they are taking themselves a little bit too seriously, maybe. Well, I mean, Guido Torini certainly with his follow-up watch, which is the Minute Rattrapante, which mm. is basically a kind of dive watch, <laughs> does seem to have taken the <laughs> playing with the watch movement to the next level. Love it. Uh, so I think you're right. I think PF is now the fidget spinner of watches, and that's not a bad thing. But everyone needs to realize, like, David is quite the accomplished watch fidgeter. When I'm around David, <laughs> I'm noticing all the time. I don't know if David notices that I'm noticing this. He's constantly messing with his watch. If it's a chronograph, he's pushing the pushers. If there's a bezel, he's turning it. If there's a strap, he's taking it on and putting it off. He's just It's just that's constant testing every joint, every possible thing. And so um, someone needs to do that. You need to make a watch with a bunch of turning parts. It's got to click in some ways. Yes. Maybe make some snapping noises. You know, the bracelet is a whole area. You could have all kinds of fun things that no one uses that for little fake buttons, right? 
like <laughs> uh, there's just so many little funny things that you could do because there's people like David out there, people who are calmed by the mechanical molesting of their timepiece. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I do. I, I think I'm a, I'm a mechanical molester. I think you know that belongs in my business <laughs> card. It's kind of sketchy, well, but you know, whatever. <laughs> that's me sorted out the intro section for this podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> good stuff. I mean, yeah, it's a uh, it's a watch uh, worth fidgeting with for sure. Let's find another watch that might survive being fidgeted with. Bremen brings a prototype to life with the MB Viper limited edition watch. David, do you think this would survive your fidget spinner life? Would this be a good bop it watch for you? Something uh, tested? Or you know, is this just a horror show? Because I looked at this, I'm like, what? I, I'll be honest. I, I don't I, I don't understand this at all. This should survive being ejected from a fighter plane and having this watch on. Yeah. So it, it should definitely survive me fidgeting with it. It's it's a weird looking watch. Um the more I, I don't know it's it's i so mean weird. should it just be ejected from a fighter plane should, <laughs> is actually what what should happen to it somewhere over the mid-atlantic somewhere deep oh um you know it this is i don't even know what to make of it I, I i would have to see this in person because it's it's some things that are this bad on pictures can be amazing on the wrist like it just just fantastic you know so that's that's the thing it's it's really odd in in many ways but once you put it on maybe it's going to be like oh my god you know i'm technically strapped into a fighter plane already so i wouldn't say just based on images that it's it's bad because it's bad based on images <laughs> but uh, you know on the wrist this could be tremendous fun so i, I don't want to rid them uh, of, of this of this assumption because you know technically it could be a thing i don't think anyone actually thinks this is a pretty watch i think it's cool but i don't even think bremont thinks this is a pretty watch i don't think that's why they're even releasing this so why release it i mean just because you can doesn't mean you should it's based on a prototype but there's a reason it's a prototype I, okay i got a story here because i i actually got to see years ago more than a, a long time ago i was in england with bramont and they actually took me to martin baker so i got to go to martin baker and meet the martin baker people and it's really really cool and at Mark and Baker, I don't, I think it's it's there. They pulled out this box. It was a watch box. It was like a Pelican style box. It had like eight or ten or twelve watches in it or something like that. Hmm. And it was all the prototypes. It was all the watches that Bramon had made to try to survive the shock and vibration of being ejected from the from the from the seat. And uh -huh. A lot of them had failed and they did a bunch of different things. They had different case styles. And I'm pretty sure I remember seeing that one that was supposed to be like that. Remember, this was, you uh -huh. know, after the Bell and Ross, uh, the BR1 and BR3 were quite popular. And it made sense to do that because the whole point of the watch is to be shock absorbent. So the more watch case, the better. And they put the sort of absorbent material in there. Later on through innovation and sort of uh, revising it, they were able to see that they could actually make the watch smaller and round. And they didn't have to put all this armor around it. So this does really represent. I remember that dial. They, they, they did do kind of funny dials like that, that like. You know, mm -hmm. looking back on that, you're like, I'm not sure if that would have been great, but it was it was an evolution. So I think why they came out with it was, A, 
to go back to one of these seminal Bremont stories, which is really important, which is the the Martin Baker watches, which haven't really gotten a lot of attention in a while. You know, the brand started very heavy with it and like sort of tested to, you know, tested basically tested to the limits and everything. And the whole brand personality was built around their project with Martin Baker. And then they sort of went off into other directions. Now I just think they're returning to it. And this watch, it's a talking piece. Not everyone's going to like it. But the goal is to focus the attention back on the work they did with Martin Baker and the various Martin Baker watches. I have one one version of one of them. They're, they're excellent timepieces. I don't know that they get sort of all the credit that they deserved. Norcane just got a lot of credit for its shock-absorbent watch. But with the, the Martin Baker, you know, I, I, I don't know the community and the industry was ready at the time to even recognize that that was quite an innovation. So that's what I think is going on. I, I really did see this thing, and the actual story with Martin Baker is cool, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's beautiful to look at or the must-have watch to get. I think if they just put if they had just put a, a Martin Baker logo on it and maybe a striped minute hand, the message would have been lost on people that we are actually speaking for Bremen, working with with Martin Baker, and we're taking this seriously. And we've been working with them for a decade or how however long. And again, this this is I think this is supposed to be a talking piece. If it was just a, a rebadged whatever nonsense watch without all the technicality and, so, and, and, and specifications and all the rest of it, then people would be like, oh, okay, it's just, Bremen is just a co-branding brand, which, which it is in some time, in some ways, but this one actually is supposed to go with those ejection seats and with those G-forces and all the rest of it. And, and I was there at, at Martin Baker and it's one of the, one of the, one of the most impressive places I've ever been. And, and you know, the, the, this is actually something that could work for Bremen if they went in this direction, as opposed to all the whimsical stuff that, you know, this is a British company. It's, it's uh, highly accomplished. It's very highly regarded in, in, in the aviation and it's a, it's a, a legitimate test for any watch. So maybe that's, that's why this is as ugly as it is. So, I mean, I'm prepared to buy into the idea that this is them visiting their history. I think the key thing is what's their next move? Because there's no point in doing this to re-highlight Martin Baker, which I agree with you, great watch, great range of watches, the triptych cases and all the stuff that followed on from that. It's amazing engineering. My fear is that they've done this and then they'll not follow up with here is how we're developing this story, that it's a one and done, especially with Davide Serato coming in. Do you think this is the kind of release that Davide is going to follow on with something that takes the story further? Oh, is that yeah. his style? Oh, yeah. He's all about the sort of visual storytelling. Let's show the phases. Look, let's also look at the car world. And the car world is now becoming obsessed with like companies like Porsche and Ferrari, like making that prototype or making the, the remake of the prototype. It doesn't matter. The prototype like never really worked or was improved later. Like it's just cool and historic. And so I think they're trying to like fit into that. Like, again, this industry is constantly follow the automotive industry. And like, that's a thing in the, with collector's cars. So the, the, the later Martin Baker watches that came out, the ones that were eventually commercialized, I think were a better watch because they were just as shock resistant and smaller case and more elegant. And that was the one they decided, okay, we're done. This was uh, an evolutionary step, which has interest. It's kind of like, um, you know, that Tudor came out with that I forget the name of it. That one weird one that has the crown, that funky crown. P01. Yeah, like like stuff like that. Like it's different. Yeah. It's a talking <laughs> point. 
it does not look like anyone's idea of a complete product. And that's not what it's trying to be. <laughs> it's just like, look at me. I've got a prototype. I'm the kind of guy that likes incomplete things. And that's cool to some people once in a while. Like that's, it's kind of what it is. It's like, it's like the guy that's like, yeah, this is my remake of a 1960 blah, 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 Porsche prototype that was rejected because it killed people on the road, but no one's got one but me. Produces a limited edition of 300. Do you think they'll ever make 300 of them? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they already have. Maybe they accidentally ordered the cases. And they're like, oh, God, what do we do? <laughs> it was supposed to be 30, not 300. <laughs> I do notice that the strap that's on it is the same as from the Endurance. So I wonder if that limited edition has still got some leftovers from it. It appears to be the same Velcro strap from the Endurance, which is a particularly cool watch, a favorite of mine. Anyway, go and comment. Have a look at that watch on about. Have a look at that watch at a blog to watch and give us your thoughts on it. 2023 marks 25 years of Erwork, a brand from Baumgartner and Fry with the ambition to challenge Otter Lagerie with new ideas and modern technologies, making art that tells time. The UR111C Cobra was released in 2018 as part of Erwork's special project collection. Making a change from wandering hours, the time is displayed using rotating cylinders in three windows on the edge of the case, meaning it can be read without needing to turn your wrist. Instead of a conventional crown, there's a rotating cylinder underneath the seconds display and a lever on the side of the case that work together to wind the watch and set the time. For more, search for Erwork at blogtowatch.com or follow at Erwork Geneva on Instagram. I don't think we'll be struggling for some thoughts on this next watch, the Hublot Big Ban Unico Nespresso Origin, a watch made from recycled coffee pods. Personally, I'm actually quite a big Nespresso fan. I actually really like this watch. Hashtag, is that okay? It's not the first luxury watch uh, based on Nespresso. Let's just remember that. Isn't it? What what other options are there? Just anything that George Clooney wears? No, there was... Um, it started with letter B. I'll remember it. But what they did is they made a watch dial out of a crushed Nespresso-like capsule. Capsule. The Blancier. That's right. So they... That's what you could do. So you, they had the different colors on there, and they smashed it and looked kind of cool because it was round. And the joke was that you know this company that says that they're like you know uh, all about sustainability, it's like you're know, throwing away this huge amount of these. <laughs> these and again, in Switzerland, if you've ever been to any of the watch manufacturers, this is the only caffeine they drink. Okay, like that's it. It's this. Yeah. There's no competitors. So this industry, which is just throwing away you know mountains of these capsules a year, just decides as <laughs> a joke. Hey, let's repurpose some of them and put them in a watch and say we're recycling. We're we're upcycling a little bit. Um, so yeah. so Hublot is a bit late to the game, actually. So if you want to go and check out the watch that David and Ariel have just referred to, you need to go back to November the 29th, 2012. The Balancier Grand Cru watch with an espresso capsule dial. Yeah, go and check that out on a blog to watch. Go and see if you can find it. Go to the brand section is the best on Balancier. So what do we think about the credentials of saying something is recycled when the amount of metal contained in this that comes from Nespresso is 28% of the alloy and the amount of coffee grounds is 4.1% of the strap and the amount of rubber that's recycled is 82 Should there be a minimum? A bit like Swiss made has to be 60%. Should something have to have a minimum quantity of recycled 
before you can try and big up the green credentials of a thing? Probably, but aren't there other problems that society needs to focus on? <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough, I accept that. So, <laughs> so I, I mean, fundamentally, I quite like, irrespective as to the green credentials of this watch, I quite like the look of this. This looks cool. It looks like it's like a Chia watch. Like if you add water to it, like grass yeah. will grow. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. I like that. I like that idea. Uh, the question is, if you if you were like to put it in an espresso machine, would you still get the remnants of some sort of brown water coming out of it when subjected to the high pressures and high temperatures? If you if you lick it, you'll get about six minutes of energy. Oh yeah. <laughs> if you start the chronograph, it will make an annoying buzzing noise and like. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> at least I resisted the temptation to put any reference to the timing of. <laughs> make an espresso on the dial because oh, i'm bother. not a fan of that well look last year they came out with the same watch in purple and all they said mm. was summer purple and no one said enough so this year they're like uh, <laughs> we can't just call it summer green and it be aluminum mm. we have to have some other shtick so you know I, I, it's it's the shtick it's just it's the little added thing that gives it the talking point otherwise it's their green aluminum watch and Maybe next year it'll be a different color aluminum watch. I'm guessing that'll be the case, and may that maybe that one will be to save the blink. Well, they're not the only ones with aluminum watches that have come out in the past few days. We have new Bulgari aluminum watches for summer 2023 and zero references to coffee involved, as far as I can tell. What do we make of the Bulgari? Do they still call this watch the Bulgari Bulgari? No. No, they haven't done no. that in about 20 years. Is that right? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Bulgari. Who keeps track of such nuances, right? <laughs> why, why bother? So, why, yeah, exactly. I've got you two to keep me right. Why do I need to This, why do I this need to watch this is an homage to the UK, aluminium. While the rest <laughs> of the world yeah. has moved on to aluminium. <laughs> I'm still 20 years ago. This is the Bulgari Bulgaria aluminium. There you watch. go. Just throw a Bulgari in there <laughs> a few more times. Actually, I remember is the, the, you know, the Diagono. <laughs> So yes. they, they took that part of the name out. So this has Bulgari on the watch. How many times? I see five. Any advance on five? Oh, at least seven. Six. At least seven. I can see six. Yeah. You haven't there seen the be, case back. Don't forget the, the case back. Well, yeah. there must case be one back. on the buckle. And maybe, the, yeah, the, maybe the crown. No, not the crown, oh, is actually. There one on the crown? <laughs> no, there's not on the crown. I really like these. They're great. They're, re they're amazingly comfortable really comfortable yes. and you know what's also good about these you know there's this sort of question out there what is the watch you get for a young person who maybe is you know uh not quite 20 or just out of college you want them to have something cool and distinctive but you don't want to spoil them too much and everyone's like buy them the tag hoyer well you know mm. for the for when you yeah. don't want to buy them the tag hoyer like one of these and again it's all lvmh so lvmh wins any <laughs> anyway even with the hublot <laughs> uh but these are you know one of the rare you know i guess in the scheme of things decently priced watches and it's cool and luxury but that for a young person that won't spoil them forever Yes. Unlike others, we are not actually sponsored by LVMH Group. We just like their watches. Anyway, they're, they're just great value for an amazing, you know, it is a fashion brand. They do have some serious chops in the watch world. Who's a fashion uh, brand? Sorry? Who's a fresh, fashion brand? Bulgari. Are you, you kidding think? me? <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's funny you say that. I mean, it's uh, a lot of other brands with 
greater hysterical proper watchmakers when when they don't make their cases or their dials and uh -huh. they barely make any of their movements. So, but you're yeah. see, you're see, you're seeing me calling them a fashion brand as being something offensive, though. Um, I don't think that's I, a bad I, I'm, thing. I'm with David here. They're an Italian manufacturer, and and built into the the sort of you know theme is they have to be pretty. And so, like other mm -hmm. other companies in other countries that are manufacturing companies wouldn't have a mandate of like, oh, they also need to look good. But like in Italy, that's an important <laughs> thing. Like even if they're not made as well, they still need to be pretty. So Bulgari watches are made really well. But yep. I don't think they see themselves as a fashion company because even though they have all those meetings about following color trends in their <laughs> minds, they're 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 manufacturing items and then they're uh -huh. also making sure that they're pretty when they make them. Like I think that's that's the way their mind is working. I mean, maybe it's just because I, I'm used to the aftershave before I was used to the watches. Yeah. So maybe I just think of them that well, way. Well, it's an extension of, of the brand. They're, of they're trying to have, we'll call it a lifestyle brand because I think a fashion brand is a company that looks out to what's cool and then tries to sort of curate it and refine it and render it for themselves. Whereas I think that Bulgari sees themselves as, you know, cr creating what's cool as opposed to, you know, serving what's cool. And I think that they see themselves more as originating versus responding to trends. And again, there's a lot of nuances and people again will be like, well, they, they make handbags again. True. But I think that they 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 see themselves as, uh, as as more than just sort of following trends. Again, even the high end companies that are fashion brands don't really like being reminded that they're fashion brands. And and I think because there's a perception amongst consumers that uh, you know you 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 maybe you pay a premium for um, some element that you don't need. I, I I'm not sure. Maybe you could explain why there's a prejudice against fashion brands. Well, I, I think we'll put it to the vote. So if you're listening to this on Spotify, I'll stick a poll out. If you're on the Spotify app, scroll to the bottom of the episode and we'll ask the question, when you think of Bulgari, do you first of all think fashion brand? Do you think lifestyle brand? Or do you think watch brand? And we'll see what the answer is. Maybe I think of them as fashion brand because I think of them as actually driving fashion. Like, there is no doubt that the Octofinissimo was a novel design. There's no doubt that the, and I'm still going to call it the Bulgari Bulgari, <laughs> is a novel design. So it is actually from the way I'm thinking about it, it is creating the fashion. Other people will follow. And so that's why I think of it as fashion, mm -hmm. because it's at the edge of something. And I would expect that whatever the brand come up with next will probably be something that is but is difficult to relate to other watches. It's very difficult to take the Octo Finissimo and say, oh yeah, this really reminds you of X, Y, and Z. You can say there's an influence from here, there, and everywhere else, but you look at it and you go, no, it is actually genuinely its own thing. And they have developed the Octo Finissimo as probably one of the few watch designs in the last 20 years. 15 years that actually you could recognize from across a room you know mm -hmm. before the Octofinissimo it was probably Panerai to my mind that was the kind of watch that you could recognize from a distance I think the Octofinissimo falls into it I also think that this watch falls into that just because it's got Bulgari written on it so often but I think from across a room without a great deal of knowledge as a watch geek you would recognize this watch just because it's so well known 
from my point of view. So I guess that's why I think of it first as a fashion rather than watch. But that is in no way a slight on the brand as it may be when used in conjunction with others. We have maybe time for one more. We have a choice between the Zenith Chronomaster Sport and the Chopard Alpine Eagle H8 HF, one of them was reviewed by Ariel, one of them was reviewed by David. Gents, who wants to have a both, final word? Both nice watches. Let's just agree they're both cool. They're both cool. Okay, well, we'll do it at that. They're both higher hertz, right? Both both on the higher hertz side True. of life. <laughs> <laughs> Always look on the higher hertz side of life. So, well, we'll just leave it at that then. Go and check out the articles on the Zenith Chronomaster Sport, which is a great watch and the Alpine Eagle. But one question just on the Alpine Eagle for you, David. Did you feel any different wearing this particular Alpine Eagle versus any other you have tried? It is a slightly different experience with it being in titanium. Yeah, it's interesting because somehow they've managed to finish titanium almost equally as well as as, uh, Lucent Steel. I would still be drawn to Lucent Steel because it's such a uh, special material as opposed to grade 5 titanium that you can get um, basically anywhere else. Um, Chopper has worked really, really nicely with this material and the finishing is incomparably better than, for example, what Rolex has done with titanium. It's it's ridiculous how how backwards that is. the way Chopard brushes it and, and polishes uh, this material really brings out the differences between different manufacturers when it comes to working with titanium. A lot of the times what we have are these like brushed potato-like items that are basically, you know, have no real edges, no defined uh, shapes. It's just really bad across the across the, um, the whole thing. As opposed to this one, which is, re- again, really close to the Lucent Steel one. I really like um, the orange hand and the real uh, little orange detail. It's a cool watch and it's cool to know that it's 8 hertz. Um, yeah, check out the article. I, I bring out this older version of this movement from a number of years ago from Chopard when it was more beautifully finished. Uh, they, they have taken a few steps back as far as the movement decorations are concerned, but the overall presentation of the Alpine Eagle still is a big win for me. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, that's us for this week at Where Can the dear listener finds you on the interwebs, David. It's abtw underscore David. And finally, the Ablock to Watch Instagram account is back <laughs> as well. <laughs> We're back. <laughs> uh, Ariel, what are you up to this weekend? Where can people find you on the internet? I will be traveling and producing content to the results. You can see my articles on ablocktowatch.com. I am on Instagram at Ariel to Watch. Uh, in addition to this show, Ablock to Watch Weekly, I'm also doing... Uh, the superlative podcast which goes every week and we will be at some point in the near future relaunching watch review videos uh, in a larger volume on the youtube channel so all i do is make content content slave for y'all <laughs> excellent oh my if you find me at rick tiktok thank you very much for listening speak to y'all in a week bye-bye bye everyone bye everyone <laughs>